If you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at verses 1, 2, and 3 to start, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter throughout the message this evening. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish, Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. The title of the sermon this evening is this, The Lord's Work is People Work. The Lord's Work is People Work. You say, I want to work for the Lord. Well, then you better get busy learning how to love people. Uh, you, you hear someone say, I don't like people. Well, you can't do the Lord's work until you learn to not only like people, but genuinely love people and care for people. Uh, a lot of people want to think that the church work is uh, just a, a list of tasks and procedures and paperwork and whatnot. No, at the end of the day, the Lord's work is people work, people work. And if as a church body we're going to do the Lord's work, then we're going to have to learn how to invest in and love people. And we're going to see Paul have a lot of people touches tonight in Acts 16. He's going to invest in a lot of people here in this chapter. And this is just a good reminder to us that if we're going to do the Lord's work, then we're going to have to get busy investing in people, all of us in here tonight. And so that's the truth we're going to unfold tonight. Let's pray and we'll get into the message. Lord, thank you tonight for your love to us and your care for us. Lord, your blessings truly are uh, abundant, and we rejoice in that. Lord, tonight, help us to turn off the noise of our life. Uh, Lord, many of us have many things going on and to-do lists that need to get accomplished. And, uh, Lord, the, the busy week that's pressing on us beginning at, uh, tomorrow with the work week, Lord, help us to set all that to the side and for a few minutes get lost in Acts 16 and put ourselves there with Paul and his missionary team. And, Lord, be challenged by what we see in here. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, I'm going to need some crowd participation here at the very beginning of the sermon, all right? What are the two greatest commandments? The first one is what? Love love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. We're to love God with everything within us. Everything within us is to love God. The second greatest commandment is what? Love thy neighbor as thyself. All right? And Jesus would say on these two laws, hang all the laws and the prophets. You can take the entire Old Testament and you can categorize it under either, underneath either love the Lord thy God or love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you just get good at those two, then all of the moral laws of the Bible, they just seem to take care of themselves. To do the Lord's work is to be utterly consumed with these two commandments. You cannot do the Lord's work without loving people. Luke 19.10, we find the mission statement of Jesus, who was the greatest minister to people of all time. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man hath come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did Jesus come to earth? Uh, did he come to die on the cross? That was the ultimate purpose so that he could do the greatest of people work and 
taking on our sin to offer us salvation. But did Jesus just simply come to earth just to twiddle his thumbs until he was ready to die on the cross? No, he took the last three and a half years of his life and invested that into day-to-day public ministry, doing people work, loving on people and helping them. God calls some people into paid full-time Christian service, but he calls all Christians into full-time Christian service. You say, Pastor, that makes no sense. Listen, some of us, uh, like myself, Pastor Andrew, God had distinctly called us to give our lives to go off to Bible school and train and uh, earn a diploma, and then Brother Carson as well, amen, Uh, a couple others in here. But uh, God called us to do this full-time and to work for a church and uh, to give our entire life to it. God does not call everyone to full-time paid Christian service, but God does call every single person who is saved to be a Christian all the time. All the time. You are to be busy doing the work of the Lord, busy doing the work of the Lord. Whether or not you work for and receive a paycheck from a church, God has called you to do His work, and God has called you to keep these two great commandments consistently and constantly. When you're at home with your family, you are to love your God, and you are to love your neighbors that live in that house with you. You're to love them as yourself. That means your husband and your wife. Are they your neighbor? They're the closest of neighbors. Amen? You're married? That's, they're the closest of neighbors. Maybe you have roommates. You live in a house and you share it with other people. They are your neighbors. Maybe you have children. They are your neighbors and you are to love them as you love yourself. Uh, when you're out in the yard interacting with your neighbors, you are to love God and love those neighbors, even if they like to blow their leaves onto your lawn. We're getting to leaf season, aren't we? Yep, the leaves are going to be falling, and, and the blowers are coming out. And how many of you here have a neighbor that loves to blow their excess leaves over onto your lawn? Love those neighbors as yourself. Don't blow them back over, amen? I see these lawn wars where, you know, which landscape's going to beat the other, and who's going to have the, the, the greener grass, and it's just trying to one-up one another, and then we get into these competitions that become unhealthy. Listen, you're to love those neighbors that are in your neighborhood as yourself. When you're at work, you're to love your coworkers as yourself, even the one that gets on everybody's nerves. Amen? You, you have that coworker that You know how that works, right? Especially if you're a cubicle employee. They always get put right next to you. That's how that goes. They get put right next to you. And uh, you got to put up with them all day. And they make weird noises and they do strange things. And everyone just kind of like looks at them funny. And maybe you're that employee. I don't know. Uh, but um, you're, you're to love your neighbor as yourself, including those uh, coworkers. And uh, listen, you may have uh, people at work who are popular at work, but they're godless. They're godless. And you think, uh, I'm on the outs with them because they know I'm a Christian, and they may even make fun of you, but you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because the Lord's work is people work. Um, are you, so uh, in Acts 16, Paul is departing on his second missionary journey, and as we will see here in Acts 16, his work is not going to be tasks as much as it is people. So I want to ask you a question this evening, and this question is for every 
one in the room who has been saved any length of time and is established in their faith. Here is the question. Are you investing into someone spiritually? If so, who is it? Do you know who you're investing in? Now, you might be a mom here with children at home, and you think, I'm investing in my children. That is the number one priority, mom and dad. You are to invest spiritually into those children. Uh, But listen, God's not just called us to be focused at home, and we forget about the community at large. Who are you investing in spiritually? You think, oh, well, I'm just a child, or I'm, 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 uh, what, what can I do? Find someone and invest in them spiritually. Why? Because the Lord's work is people work. People work. Um, do, do your children see you as a spiritual leader or as a hypocrite? To the children, do your peers view you as someone who is going in a spiritual direction? By the way, leadership, leadership. I heard someone say one time, uh, there is no such thing as a leader. Uh, leaders don't go get a crowd and get them to follow them. Leaders are going where other people want to go, and other folks just naturally get in behind them and go there. Are you with me this evening? If you're going somewhere where others want to go, you're going to end up being a leader. Not because you're leading, but because they're following. Because you're leading yourself. You know where you're trying to go. Um, Do your coworkers see you as someone uh, that they can come to with problems in their life? I've shared how that I've worked at various places in uh, a secular workforce setting, warehouse type settings, and uh, I've made it known that I was a Christian, and I've been made fun of and belittled and put down. But one at a time, those people who were making fun of me would wait in the parking lot after work. Can, can I speak with you for a few minutes? And then the next thing I know, they're sitting in my car, and they're bearing their problems, they're bearing their soul, and I'm able to give them the gospel. Did all of them get saved? No. But I'm able to give them the gospel. I'm able to listen to their problems. I'm able to give them some general advice. And I'm able to pray with them. And you know what? A month later, they're back to making fun of me. But they know when times get tough. They know if they respect your faith, they know where to turn. Why? Because the Lord's work is people work. Do your neighbors know that you were there for them during hard times to minister to them? I'm talking about the neighbors in your neighborhood. They see you get in your car every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening, and you're dressed up a little bit, and you have a Bible under your arm, and off to church they go again. And they're thinking to themselves, man, those people are weird. They go to church like almost every day of the week. Like they're always going to church. And, uh, they, you know, they talk about you behind your back. But listen, do they know you're there for them when times get tough? You see, people let us love on them when they know that we deeply love God and we genuinely care for them. Who is it that leans on you for spiritual help? Who is it that leans on you for spiritual help? Is there a name that comes to mind? You think to yourself, that person I'm investing in. That person I am loving on. That person I am discipling. That person I am mentoring. You see, because if you're not investing in someone else, you're not growing yourself. When you, uh, 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 who are you allowing to mentor you so that you can continue to grow? Uh, another way of wording this is everyone needs a Paul, 
And everyone needs a Timothy. Everyone needs a Paul who's investing in them. And everyone needs a Timothy in whom they can invest themselves. And uh, listen, there ought to be someone that when you are having a hardship in your life, uh, obviously you go to the Lord in prayer, but a human being you can go to and say, listen, this is a struggle in my life, help me. There ought to be other people who look to you and say, I'm having a struggle in my life, can you help me? And listen, this is the process of growth. It's investing in people. I believe that everyone who is saved is called to do the work of the Lord. I propose that the work of the Lord is people work. No matter someone's background or life struggle, our compassion to them can be a doorway that leads them to salvation through Christ. Every believer is called to minister to the needs of others. Let's take Acts 16 apart verse by verse and let's look at uh, six thoughts this evening as we consider this truth. The Lord's work is people work. Let's jump in this evening. Note point number one, Paul's disciple. Paul's Disciple. Letter A, letter A below that, notice Timothy's conversion. Timothy's conversion. Once you've got those jotted down, look at verse number 1 with me. The Bible says, Then came he, that's speaking of Paul, then came he to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, or Timothy, the son of a certain woman, who, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of, speaking of Timothy, was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Now remember the first time that Paul came through this region, back in the first missionary journey, he came up through and went to Antioch, Pisidia, and then made his way over to Derby and uh, Iconium, then Derby, uh, Lystra and Derby, and, and, and now Paul's coming in in the reverse direction. He, he didn't come from Cyprus up, he's making his way uh, uh, opposite direction, opposite way through the first time, and he makes his way through, and all of a sudden everyone's saying, Paul, we're glad you're back. You have to meet this Timothy character. He got saved the last time you were here, and man, spiritually, he is taken off, and he is shot up like a weed. Boy, he has grown in the Lord. He loves the Lord, and his love for God and devotion for the Lord and his salvation was so genuine and real that everyone in the Lystra and Iconium area who were believers knew who Timothy was. Timothy got saved most likely as a result of Paul in his first time there. That was the time Paul went and they took him out to the edge of town and they stoned him. Remember that? They stoned him and then he's back out in the street preaching the very next day. Timothy was impressed by that. Now Timothy was raised by a mother and grandmother uh, we know from the book of 1 Timothy who were devout Jews and they followed all of the customs that the Jews uh, uh, of the Jews and taught Timothy the scripture from a very young age. Then Paul came to town and he preached uh, Jesus as the completion of the Old Testament law and the promised Messiah. And lo and behold, Timothy and his family heard this message of the gospel and they got saved. As a result of Paul's ministry, uh, Timothy and his family got saved. In the interim of Paul being away, Timothy had grown so much in the Lord that he had become well known uh, uh, for his strong faith throughout the region. And then when Paul came back to town, Timothy and Paul were quick to connect. They quickly found each other. Timothy uh, would uh, be a perfect replacement for John Mark and could help handle the daily affairs of mission life. Timothy likewise would be trained and prepared for ministry himself. So Timothy's conversion, letter B, letter B, notice Timothy's complication. Timothy's 
complication. Look back at verse number 1. The Bible says, Then came he, uh, again in speaking of Paul, to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman. And listen, uh, the Bible felt that this was important enough to God had it put in here. The mother was Jewish and had believed, but the father was a Greek. So Timothy's salvation and zeal uh, were as real as could be, but Timothy had a problem. Timothy had a problem. You understand that the Jew-Gentile world was very divided. Very divided. And Timothy fell right in the middle of being a Jew and a Gentile. He had been raised as a Jew by his mother, but he was uncircumcised because his father was a Greek, and so the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with him because he had a Greek father, and the Gentiles didn't want to have anything to do with him because he had a Jew mother, and he'd been raised in the Jewish faith. And here he is on fire for the Lord, and everyone's excited for him, but the Jews are like, okay, you stay over there, and the Gentiles are like, well, you stay over there. And so he's just kind of in no man's land. And uh, that was his complication. Uh, He was stuck in the middle. Letter C, we see Timothy's circumcision. Timothy's circumcision. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Now, Timothy's a grown man, and Paul goes to Timothy and says, Hey, listen, um, we've got to get you out of this middle no man's land area. And so um, this is an uncomfortable topic, but what do you think about being circumcised? And uh, this will make you a full-blown Jew and be accepted by the Jews. Now, Paul had stood before the council in Jerusalem and had said, we are not going to make the Gentiles get circumcised in order for them to believe that they're saved. We're not going to have these Gentiles uh, succumb to Jewish tradition in order to be saved. That's not in the Bible. Uh, you believe and receive. That's how you get saved. Uh, but uh, So Paul 100% did not think that Timothy's circumcision had anything to do with his salvation, but it did have to do with Timothy being able to do the work of the Lord and be able to reach people. And I give Paul a lot of credit for even being willing to mention this to Timothy and and, and take Timothy aside and have this done. But I give Timothy way more credit for being willing to go through this. Timothy's a grown man and had to be put through a very uncomfortable uh, uh, surgery and be left in a whole lot of pain for a long time in order to be able to relate with people and reach people. Now, did this work? Yes, because Timothy would end up becoming a pastor in an area that was highly Jewish, and he would be an effective minister with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would have never been able to do that had he not gotten circumcised. Now, Paul had great discretion. Titus was a a, a Gentile by mother and father and would minister to Gentiles on the uh, island of Crete, and Paul never suggested that he be circumcised. But Timothy, his other preacher boy, He had him circumcised. Now, I don't want you to miss this point before we move on. Timothy was willing to be greatly inconvenienced in order to reach people. Paul said that we're to become all things to all men in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Are you willing to be greatly inconvenienced in order to reach 
people. I don't know what that means, but as the Spirit of God moves in your life, it might mean that you have to give up your Saturday mornings in order to be a part of Great Commission Saturday. It might mean that you have to do something that's uncomfortable like talking to strangers. How many of you here are terrified of talking to strangers? Be honest. You're so terrified you can't even raise your hand right now, okay? Um, Stranger danger, stranger danger, right? Uh, I don't want to... Uh, encroach on their time. Um, listen, I, I got to sit down with a guy last uh, Saturday and in his front yard, and he was wide open to the gospel. Let me just say this right here. Let me plug the Soul Winners Club for a moment. In the Soul Winners Club, we do not teach people to strong-arm anybody into getting saved. You know what we do when we go out door-to-door soul winning? We knock on someone's door, and if they tell us or show us with their body language that they don't want to have anything to do with what we're doing, we simply give them a gospel tract with our church information on it, and we head to the next door. We are not there to strong-arm, high-pressure someone into hearing the gospel and getting saved. You know what I have found in my five years of pastoring this church and knocking on most of the doors in this community? That if I go out for a couple of hours, I generally can find one or two people in that time who want me to sit down with them and give them the gospel. They want to hear the good news. They're glad I came by their door. They're relieved I stopped by to talk with them. They open their heart and they believe. Listen, I don't know what's uncomfortable for you, but if you're not investing in people, you're not doing the work of the Lord. Number one, uh, here we see Paul's disciple. Number two, notice the church's development. The church's development. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Acts 16. The Bible says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep. They were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So again, Paul begins his second missionary journey by going back through in reverse order the region that he and Barnabas had pioneered in their first journey. What did he find when he got to the cities of Lystra and then Derby or Derby then Lystra then Iconium and then Antioch and Pisidia? What did he find? He found churches. Listen, they were only in those places for a brief period of time. Maybe a couple of months at the longest. They had given the gospel out, people had gotten saved, and then they were run out of town by the Jews and the synagogues in those areas. But when he came back through several years later, those Christians had organized themselves into what I'll call Jesus communities or churches, and they had developed a strong, local, autonomous church in those regions. And Paul came and he found those churches doing well. He delivered to them the letters from the council in Jerusalem where they had debated over uh, how salvation was to work. Uh, the Judaizers had come in and said, no, we, we need to uh, Jewify salvation. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James stood up and said, no, that's not how it's going to be. And letters had been written on the conclusion, and Paul delivered those letters to these churches in order to snuff out any works-based type salvation. And then he gave the churches some pointers on church ministry, and as a result, the churches increased in number daily. Increased in number daily. That means every day the church was growing. Now, I, I, I think about that phrase throughout the book of Acts, increased in number Daily. Do you know for a church to increase in number daily, there has to be some effort every single day to reach people and get them into the church. Um, this would be like people stopping by the church every day and knocking on the door and saying, can we join? Can we join? Can we be a part? Can we believe? 
Can we be baptized? Uh, can we uh, join the church membership? They were added to the church daily. Boy, this was spreading through that region. Now again, church is not about a building. It's about the people in the building. And by the way, you don't have to have a building to have church. There very well may come a day where we don't have a property anymore. The government may become so hostile against churches that they take our buildings away. Do you know that they can take our building away, but they can't take our church away? We can go sit in the field and have church. We can gather in each other's homes and have church. Because the church is not about property. I see some folks get so up in arms if one little uh, uh, detail is out of place in the building and one little thing isn't right about the building. And let me just say this to you. I get it. I understand that, you know, it it costs money to uh, upkeep the building and some of you are donors of the church and you give a lot and you want to see things in place. But let's never lose perspective that the church is not this property. The church is us, the people. And remember, the Lord's work is people. Work is people work. Um, I heard of a I heard of a, a church ministry that had a large bus ministry, and uh, with the bus ministry they had multiple bus routes that brought hundreds of children and hundreds of adults into the church, and it was a larger church. And there was a bulletin board in the room where the bus workers would meet every Saturday, and up on that bulletin board, the bus director put these words. He said, "The bus ministry is about people." And uh, I, I remember uh, the first time I heard that, I thought, well, of course the bus ministry is about people. Why would they even need to take the time to explain that? Then it dawned on me. Some people might think the bus ministry is about oil changes and, and, and new brake pads. And, and, and uh, they might think that the bus ministry is about bus captains and helpers and They might think that the bus ministry is about going out on Saturday for a couple of hours and going through the routine of visiting the route. No, no, no. The bus ministry, as every other ministry in this church, it's not about anything other than people. You usher in our church, we're thankful for that. Ushering is about the people that you serve. You help in the nursery. It's about the children in that nursery that you serve. You teach a life group here that meets at 945. By the way, I failed to mention this this morning. Everyone who comes to the life group this next Sunday gets a special edition White Oak Baptist Church t-shirt. You can only get it at 945, so make sure you're here. Amen? You say, I don't wear t-shirts. You'll Listen, this t-shirt is so great, you'll want to frame it and put it on your wall. So make sure you are here. It's going to be an awesome t-shirt. Uh, Brother Joe and I worked on it. It was a collab design, mostly me, but a little bit him. Amen. And uh, you're, you're going to love this t-shirt. If you don't, then give it to me. I love it. Amen. Uh, but uh, you'll want to be here this Sunday to get it. But listen, if you teach a life group, it's not about your material. It's not about you getting up and showing how smart you are. It's about the people in your class and your investment in those people. If you do show up and help us clean the building, I praise the Lord for you. We had uh, volunteers this week clean the building and cut the lawn. And boy, I praise God for that. But can I tell you that we don't clean buildings or cut grass just so we can have a clean building. We do it for the people that come into the building. The, the, the church increased not in square footage. The church increased not in acreage. The church increased in people daily. Why? Because the Lord's work is people work. Number three, notice Paul's lack 
of direction, Paul's lack of direction. So they finished ministering to the churches that they had established the first time around, and now Paul has Timothy with him. He has a team of people with him, and uh, where are they going to go next? It's time to plot out a new territory. Look at verse 6 with me. Now, when they, were, uh, when they had gone through uh, Phrygia and the regions of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they uh, were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. Paul had his mind made up. He had a destination in mind. He was heading toward Asia Minor. He was heading east. His plans were to evangelize the east. But the Holy Ghost kept shutting doors and preventing them from moving forward. How many of you here know what that's like? You have a plan, and uh, you know exactly what that plan is, and uh, you've got it all laid out, and then you know you, you start trying down the road with that plan, and doors just get slammed shut. You know what I'm talking about? You think, Lord, I'm trying real hard to serve you. I'm trying real hard to move forward with my life, lead my family. And, you know, you get fired from your job. And then, you know, you, you, your car gets repossessed. And the next thing you know, you're having problem after problem. You're trying to do this and all of these problems. And it's almost as though God is saying, you're not going in the right direction. Well, that's what was happening with Paul. Maybe his donkey got repossessed. I don't know. But uh, he's going and trying to serve the Lord, and all of these things are just going wrong. And Paul gets on his knees in prayer and says, Lord, I'm trying to do what I did the first on the first journey. I'm trying to plot out in new regions and preach the gospel and see people saved. And you just keep shutting door after door. And the Spirit of God says, Paul, this is not where I want you. I forbid you from going to Asia Minor. I forbid you from going into Bithynia. I have something else in mind. Now, um, I, I was reading about this this week, and I read a perspective on, on this I'd never thought of. Um, can you imagine the pressure on Paul with this team, right? Timothy, this young whippersnapper, zealous preacher boy, is following him and thinking, oh man, this is going to be great. Sensational preaching services and I mean, people getting saved and people getting angry and people getting stoned and people getting thrown in jail. This is going to be exciting. And then Paul's just like wandering in a circle and not doing anything. And Timothy is maybe talking to the guy saying, what's going on here? And uh, maybe Paul can even hear the whispering. And then Paul must have gotten frustrated inwardly. No. Again, I'm speculating a little bit here. But I think it's fair to say that Paul may have been a little frustrated. We've gone to this town and not really gotten anything up and going. And we're, we're on a missionary journey. We're in this town and uh, nothing's really happening here. And what's going on? And I can hear Paul talking to his team and just saying, Guys, be patient. Be patient. The Lord is going to lead. The Lord is going to show us. It's not time yet. We'll just keep praying and trusting and waiting. And that really is the word for point number three, and that is the word wait. Wait. Sometimes you go through seasons of life where you feel directionless. And in those seasons, what, do you, what should you do? Should you just wander out of the will of God altogether and give up on the Christian life? No. What should you do? You should pray, you should go to church, you should read your Bible, and you should wait on the Lord. Be consistent in who you are. Be consistent in your Christian life. And wait on the Lord. And in His time, He will show you. Number four, notice Paul's dream. 
Paul's dream. Look at verse number 9. So they make it to the port city of Troas. And, uh, man, I'm sure the missionary team is thinking, this is it. This is it. I mean, Troas has got all of the uh, uh, hustle and bustle of a big city. and uh, It's a port town and ships are coming in and all these international people. And uh, Listen, uh, a lot of good can be done. A church can be started and still nothing. Verse 9, in a vision appeared to Paul in the night, there stood a man of Macedonia, that's a region, and prayed to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course uh, to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. So they had come to the port city of Troas. People were moving about the city, a lot going on, a lot of people to be reached. No church was being planted. Paul was making no real effort to do so in the city. Instead, God gave him a vision or a dream as he slept. This has been called the Macedonian call. The Macedonian call. In this vision, a man appears from the region of Macedonia and he says, Come over and help us. Come over and help us. Now, who was this man? That appeared in his dream. Was this an actual person that Paul would later meet? Uh, I will just say it is most likely that this was just a nameless figure of a man in a dream. Some commentators, some Bible theologians have speculated based on Luke's usage of pronouns throughout the book. He goes from talking about them to us and we. Some speculate that the Macedonian man was Luke. Was Luke? Now I don't know that to be the case. That Luke would have joined the team here and not had not been part of up until this point. Many people have all kinds of opinions about where Luke originated or came from. But nonetheless, Paul had a vision. He had a dream, and in that dream, God called him to a specific region to do the work, and they did not let any grass grow up under their feet. All right, listen up to me here for a minute. We make a point of application. There are a handful of you in here. God has called you to do the work of the Lord. If God has called you to do the work of the Lord, you make sure you are in the perfect will of God and you are not sitting on the sidelines waiting for your life to be perfect before you get after it. You make sure you know exactly what God would want you to do. And when God calls you, boy, when you get that Macedonian call, you go from that direction list to you know exactly God's will, Boy, don't you wait a minute to get after it. The moment Paul knew where God wanted him, he didn't say, well, let's just finish up here in Troas with some things and and then we'll get after it. Uh, Let's just uh, make sure that everything's perfect and then we'll get after it. No, they woke up the next morning, they packed their bags, and they went and did the work of the Lord. Number five, notice Philip's diversity. Philip's diversity. Look, or Philippi's rather. Philippi's diversity. Look at verse number 12. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. So they made their way to the city of Philippi, about ten miles from the port city they landed in. And Luke says that this city was a chief city of that part of Macedonia. So that region of Macedonia, Philippi was the capital city. He described it as a colony. Now, hang in here with me. I'm going to give you some background on what a colony is, and, and then we'll look, begin to look at some individuals that they reached. How did the Roman government 
uh, maintained such a stronghold throughout its vast region for so long. Can I tell you how they did it? They would go through, they'd conquer an area, and then they would strategically place colonies all throughout that region. And they would have enough colonies, and then they would have Roman citizens transplant into that colony and live there, and that would establish a strong Roman authoritarian feel within that region. So Philippi not only is the capital of this region of Macedonia, Philippi is filled with Roman folk who had moved there in order to establish Roman dominance in Macedonia. So Philippi was a big deal. And what we know is that this was very much what Paul would do. He would go to a region he wanted to reach. He would go to the most influential city in that part of the area. He would preach the gospel and work his way through. He would see a church established and then he would allow that church to reach in to the broader regions at large or rather the the, the smaller, more rural regions at large. So now we find Paul and his team, Timothy, Luke, and others here in Philippi and their they're going to begin to try to reach the people. All right, letter A. Let's see the people work they do here in Philippi. Notice letter A, a cultured lady. A cultured lady. Look down with me at Acts 16, verse number 13. The Bible says, And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spoke unto the, woman, unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, uh, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us, or convinced us. Now, everywhere else that Paul would go for the first time, what was his... Uh, What was Paul's method of reaching a city when he arrived there for the first time? The first thing he would do is he'd go where? How many of you know? He'd go where? Brother Russo, to the synagogue. He didn't go to the synagogue in Philippi. Well, why not? How come he ended up on the outskirts of town by a river with a group of women? Can I tell you why I think that was? I don't think Philippi had a synagogue. I don't think they were religious enough to have a synagogue. He was in Greek territory now. Uh, he was in the European uh, area now. And here he is. There is no religious synagogue for him to go to. And so Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, could use those credentials to get at least one speaking opportunity in the synagogue. Well, there's no synagogue here. And so he's looking for any semblance of a religious meeting he can find. And the only thing he can find are a few ladies on the outskirts of town by a river praying. And so what's he do? He goes there, and they sit, and they listen to the prayer meeting, and Paul asks for an audience. And what does Paul do? He gets up and he preaches the gospel. He preaches Jesus, crucified, risen from the dead. He preaches Jesus as the completion of the Old Testament law. And I think for most of those Greek women sitting there, they were looking at him uh, like, what are you talking about? We've never heard of any of this. But there was one woman named Lydia who was from the city of Thyatira. She was a businesswoman. She sold things that were made of purple. Back then, it was very difficult to get uh, clothing or a scarf or a coat to have the color purple in it. There was a long, drawn-out 
difficult process. If you owned purple clothing back then, you, that was a symbol of great wealth, of great wealth. And um, uh, Lydia was a seller of purple. She had learned that trade, we know historically, from the city of Thyatira. That's what they did in Thyatira. By the way, in Thyatira, there were Jewish synagogues. There was a strong Jewish presence in Thyatira. Why was it that Lydia believed and these other ladies did not immediately believe? Can I just tell you why I think it was? I think it was that while she lived in Thyatira, she had heard of the God of the Bible. She knew the stories of the Old Testament. And when Paul stood there and he preached Jesus as the completion of the Old Testament, as the Messiah, it all came together for her and her heart was tender and ready to be saved. God allowed this first convert in the region of Macedonia to be a woman who was classy, a cultured lady who was a businesswoman. And after she got saved, Paul was able to lead her family to the Lord. And then they went right down into the river and they baptized her. They baptized her and her family. She got saved and she got baptized. How powerful is the gospel? How powerful is the gospel? It can reach down and save the classiest woman in town. A woman who had great wealth. A woman who had it all together. A woman who realized she was lost and she believed. Aren't you glad that while the gospel is for the poor, the gospel is also for the rich? Aren't you glad that the gospel can reach down and save anybody? Paul went to Macedonia. He found his way to the city of Philippi. And you know, he didn't get busy looking for a piece of property to buy, to build a church building. He got busy looking for people to minister to. A cultured lady. But we see the gospel work on the other end of the spectrum. Let her be noticed, a captive slave. A captive slave. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. You see the word masters there. She's a slave, and she's got a demon living inside of her. She has a spirit of divination. She's a captive slave to both Satan and to these men who are using her to make money. The, the same followed Paul, this, this captive slave, this, this damsel followed Paul and, and us and cried saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, speaking to the demon, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he, the demon, came out the same hour. You know, there's no debate in the demonic world about who Jesus is. The demons know that Jesus is God and the Savior of the world. Now this uh, captive girl was going around and saying the right things. She was being about as obnoxious as could be. Here Paul is trying to have a conversation with someone with the gospel. And this woman standing right behind him. These men proclaim that Jesus is the way of salvation. I can see Paul thinking, oh, well, someone gets hurt. It. Just be quiet. And finally, after several days of this girl stalking them and trailing them and just obnoxiously bothering them, finally he turns... He's out of patience, and he looks at the looks toward her and speaks to the demon within her and says, Come out of her. And she was delivered from the captivity of Satan. 
She was given the gift of eternal life. Not only was she delivered from the captivity of Satan, she was delivered from the captivity of the men who were pimping her out to make money off of her. Amen. God not only reached a classy woman, he reached down and, and found some woman whose life was, uh, uh, was, a, was ruined and enslaved by demonic possession. And the Lord saved this woman. You know, sometimes God has you meet someone who's just filthy rich and wealthy and their lives are in shambles and you get to sit down and you get to give them the gospel and you get to see them get saved. I, I went out and visited a family a couple of years ago. They attend here on Sunday mornings occasionally, but I went out and visited a family several years ago and I pulled up in the driveway of their home and uh, they were going through some issues and they just needed some, some counsel and help and they had been referred to me and never visited our church, but I drove out there and I remember I pulled up in their driveway and I thought, Wow, these folks got some serious buck. And I walked past two or three living rooms. It was Christmas time, Christmas trees, multiple Christmas trees. And, and I knocked on the door and they invited me in. And we went and sat down in one of those living rooms. And about an hour later of answering their questions and counseling with them, uh, the mom and dad and teenage son got down on their knees in that living room. And they got saved. And uh, you don't see too many people who are that wealthy that open to the gospel. Right, Jesus said it's more common for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he's not talking about money wealth. He's talking about pride wealth, wealthy in pride. Uh, folks who are proud can't get saved. But oftentimes people who are wealthy are also people who are proud. And I, I rejoice in that. I've had other times in my life where God has brought someone into my presence and I was certain, reasonably certain, they were demon, demonically possessed. And you know what? Those folks need the gospel just as much. I, I, I strongly believe this, that in the United States of America, more folks than we care to know deal with demons, live with demonic possession. But this is a country where atheism is being pushed on us, and so Satan is careful to make sure those demons do not reveal themselves out in public. Or that would it, it, Listen, if people are demonically possessed, how can you claim there isn't a God? And so that's not allowed to happen. I've mentioned this before. My brother-in-law and sister are missionaries in, in the Fiji Islands, and out there in the Fiji Islands, uh, my brother-in-law tells me that demonic possession is out in the open, and uh, people talk in deep and strange voices and do very strange things because they're a religious culture. But I believe that to be the case here. Listen, people need the gospel. Letter C, we see a concerned jailer. A concerned jailer. Now, we'll get into the details of how Paul and Silas got thrown in jail here in a minute. But look with me down at verse number 25. The Bible says, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So verse 24 tells us that their feet are in stocks. They're in the inner prison. Uh, they're in jail. Their backs have been beaten. And uh, they're, they're, um, they're there in the Philippian uh, uh, prison. And uh, what are they doing there? They're singing praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them, verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands 
were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, "Uh, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all this house. Now, we've talked about people work tonight. And we've talked about how sometimes people work is inconvenient, right? For Timothy, in order to be effective in the gospel ministry, he had to get circumcised. But for Paul and Silas, now they're doing the work of the Lord, and their backs are beaten, and they're thrown in the prison. Their feet are locked up in stocks. Can you imagine the lack of circulation in their legs and in their arms? And what are they doing at midnight? I sure hope God gave them good voices because they were singing and praising God. Amen? And praying. And the other prisoners are hearing this. And God moves the foundation of the prison and opens up the the, the doors. And this jailer thinks, oh man, I'm going to lose my life because all these folks have escaped. And Paul says, hey man, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. And the man comes running into the cell at the testimony of Paul and Silas. And he throws himself down in front of him and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, with a big old smile on his back, said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You know that jailer did that night? That jailer put his faith in Christ, and that jailer got saved. Now you have a book in your Bible called the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. You know who the, um, uh, the original members of the church of Philippi were? Lydia. This girl who had been healed from her demonic spirit and this Philippian jailer and, and their families. These folks made up, constituted the original church. Why? Because Paul invested his life, Paul and Silas invested their life in people. I just can't emphasize this enough tonight. Some of you are introverted and quiet and would prefer to be busy with tasks and not people. My friends, the ministry is not about processes and papers. The ministry is about people. We must invest in people. Number six, lastly, let's look at the Lord's deliverance. The Lord's deliverance. And this will be quick here. Notice letter A. Notice their arrest. Their arrest. Look down at uh, verse number 19 of Acts 16. And when her masters, we're back talking about the captive slave that had the demon thrown out of her. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains were gone, the money making had dried up, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet 
fast in the stock. So these guys just simply cast a demon out of a woman. And the next thing to know, they're being arrested. They're being taken into the marketplace where the judges are. There's this uh, uh, almost riot that breaks out. And the emotion of the moment dictates that they get their backs beaten and thrown in prison. And I can see Silas thinking to himself, what did I sign up for? Right? Paul knows. And I, I can also see Silas thinking to himself, how did Timothy get out of this? Where was Timothy, right? Young Timothy wasn't around. Paul and Silas got thrown in jail over this. What would it take for you to quit doing the work of the Lord? What's that breaking point? Oh, I'm out. I'm not going to church anymore. Oh, I'm out. I'm not telling anyone else I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm out. I'm not sharing my faith. Would it take you being arrested? Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. You know what they kept doing? They kept ministering in jail. They said, boy, you can't stop us that easy. You want to stop us, you're going to have to kill us. Letter A, their arrest. Letter B, notice their attitude. Their attitude. Look at verse 25. I love this verse. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You know, when you go through hardships, Christian, the world tunes in extra to see how you handle them. Oh, I can't believe this is happening in my life. Oh, I can't believe God's allowing these bad things to happen to me. You know, the lost people in your life are looking at you and thinking, well, I guess that's good reason not to believe in that guy's God. Why would I want to have anything to do with that? You go through a hardship and you pray and sing praises to God, people take notice. People take notice. Let her see, notice their acquittal. Their acquittal. Look at verse 35 of Acts 16. So we know the story about the Philippian jailer. We talked about the guy getting saved and he took them out. He cleaned their wounds. He, had them, uh, he was baptized by them. He fed them. And I guess he had to place them back in prison legally uh, before the, the, the crack of dawn. Look at 35. And when it was day... The magistrates sent the surgeons, saying, Let these men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Paul's going to make them sweat a little bit. Okay, look at 37. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly uncondemned to being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privately? privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. We're not going anywhere. They got to come get this out themselves. And the surgeons told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them. I now listen. Paul and Silas have already had the jailer on his knees in their cell. Now they have the magistrates on their knees in the cell, and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So they, um, they were able to do the work of the Lord, no matter how painful or inconvenient it was. The Lord's work is people work. God has called every Christian again to two great commandments. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. You cannot truly love God if you're not investing into others. In Acts 16, we see Paul's ministry touch Timothy. 
possibly Luke, Lydia and her family, the demon-possessed woman, and the Philippian jailer in his household. The God of Paul is your God. Let me say that again. The God of Paul is your God. If he's able to work through Paul, he's able to work through you. The question is not, is God capable? The question this evening is, are you willing? Are you willing to be as devoted and radical with the gospel as the Apostle Paul was? To the degree we're willing to put ourselves out there, to that degree, God is willing to work with me and you. How about it tonight, Christian? Are you invested in people? Or are you self-absorbed and only invested in yourself? To you, is church just showing up and sitting on the pew and soaking in a sermon and going home? Or is church a little more than that? Are you investing and mentoring people? The Lord's work is people work. Let's have our heads.